0: Well, let me start with a question. It's a good question. Who is Jesus? It's a question that people have been asking for 2,000 years now, and it's still one of the most important questions uh, that anyone can ask today. Was he a philosopher, a healer, a leader, a social justice warrior, a fanatic, a humanist, a visionary, a teacher? A recent large survey done in the UK by the Evangelical Alliance asked this question of who is Jesus. And um, apparently only 60% of people now think that he really existed. 40% think he's just a fictional character. Interestingly, 44% of people asked believed he rose from the dead. But only 22% believe that he was God in human flesh. So who is Jesus? What is the truth about him? For our, uh, As we've heard, for our maiden voyage out into this Read the Bible Together series, uh, we're going to turn to one of the Bible's eyewitness accounts of the real historical Jesus. We're starting with Mark's Gospel. And in the space of about 30 minutes or so, we're going to do an overview of the whole book. Now, obviously in 30 minutes, we can't go into great detail this morning. Uh, This morning is, I like to think of it as part movie trailer and part... Cliff Notes, if you remember those from school, to prepare us for reading it over the next three weeks. Uh, But as we get the feel for Mark's overarching message, there are just a few particular points, passages within it that I want us to uh, land on and dip into. So please do have your Bible open. The first one we're going to go to is chapter 1, verse 1. Because here, Mark starts his gospel with a bang. Mark 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This this is Mark's headline statement, meant to grab our attention. He wants us to know from the very first line, this book is the gospel. It's good news. And it's good news not about a new car or a luxury holiday or a new philosophy or a great deal going on down at Morrison's, it is good news about a person. It's the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Which also tells us right away that Mark wants us to read his book in a certain way. He wants us to read on the edge of our seats, full of anticipation, looking for Jesus. You'll also be pleased to know, I'm pleased to to be reminded that Mark is a particularly exciting gospel to read. His language is full of life and punch. It's got the feel of like a fast-paced movie where it's constantly cutting from one scene to the next and the next. He writes dramatically because what he's describing is dramatic and life-changing. But something else that his opening line tells us is that Mark is writing with a purpose. Mark's gospel is really uh, Peter's eyewitness testimony about Jesus that Mark has collected and written down. But he's not just kind of collected a bunch of notes and stuffed them somewhere like we might stuff a bunch of papers in the kitchen drawer when people are coming over. No, he carefully crafts and arranges what Peter has told him. Uh, Now, some some of you will know that I'm not the biggest football fan in the room, but Mark is like a game of football. This book is very deliberately a game of two halves. 16 chapters in all, the first eight chapters answer the question, who is Jesus? And then the next eight chapters answer the question of why did he come? So as we do this flyover of the book this morning, we're going to tackle it one half at a time, although sadly there are no oranges at the halftime point. First of all, then, not the first point this morning, we're calling it the first half. Who is Jesus? This is chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to 8, verse 30. Uh, Look at verse 1 just one more time. This, verse 1, is the only time in the book that Mark himself is going to tell us firsthand what he believes about Jesus' identity. That Jesus is the Christ. That's another another word for that is the Messiah the Son of God. But from here on in, he's simply going to place Jesus' own words and actions before us, along with other people's reactions to Jesus, and then he's going to leave it up to us to decide. The, The proof, if you like, is in the pudding. Get a taste of the real Jesus, thinks Mark, and you'll have all the proof you need. So, what kind of things do we see Jesus doing in these first eight chapters? Well, firstly, there's no birth narrative in Mark. There's no stable, no wise men, no Christmas presents. We just get dropped straight into the final three years of Jesus' life, which uh, what came to my mind was the beginning of any and every Bond movie, when they drop you straight into the action. In his very first scene, we see Jesus going down to be baptized by John the Baptist. And as he comes up out of the water chapter 1 verse 10 immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son with you i am well pleased and then there was just two verses dedicated to his 40 days in the wilderness where he goes head to head with satan resisting temptation And then his ministry really begins. And here are just some of the things that Mark tells us about Jesus doing. He heals the sick, those with fevers, leprosy, various diseases, paralytics, the deaf, the blind. He casts out demons, who, by the way, recognize him right away. They call him the son of the Most High, and they tremble in their boots when he comes near. He helps the helpless. He eats with tax collectors, outcasts, and sinners. He perceives people's thoughts. He overturns man-made religion. He forgives sins. He walks on water. He raises a little girl from the dead as easily as waking someone from a good night's sleep. On a stormy sea, he rebukes the wind and the waves, and they obey him. He feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with just five loaves and two fishes. And then a little later on, he does it for 4,000 more people. He tells people to drop whatever they're doing and follow him, and they drop it in an instant and get up and go. And most importantly of all, he teaches and proclaims the gospel of God, urging people to hear and accept his words. He, He teaches them in parables, deliberately designed to draw a response. He tells people, Chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Also, besides telling us all that Jesus is doing, Mark also gives us a wonderful window into Jesus' character. We, We read of him being moved with pity. He cares for the hungry. He has compassion on the crowds. He calls those who follow him his family. He commends people, not for their wealth or their status or their merit, but for their faith. He welcomes and blesses little children. He's grieved by the Pharisees' hardness of heart. He's angered by the moneylenders in the temple. He forgives his enemies. And he says to his fearful disciples, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. I recently heard uh, Christian teacher and counsellor David Powlison make this following observation, which I think is so fitting for us as we read Mark's Gospel. Uh, he, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, it is, widely agreed among, upon, sorry, it is widely agreed upon amongst writers how very difficult it is to portray a truly good person in literature. The character often comes off as being a goody two-shoes or as very unreal or sappy but then, he observes, you open the Bible and you see Jesus. And perhaps for the first time ever, you see someone who is truly good. There's nothing remotely sappy or artificial or goody two-shoes about his goodness, and it's a marvel. And it goes on, no human writer could invent a character like this who is so truly good. And this is the Jesus that we get to see up close and personal over this next three and a half weeks as we read Mark together. Now Mark not only presents us with Jesus himself in these first eight chapters, he also describes people's various reactions to him. To begin with, most people are super excited. Uh, they want to be near Jesus. They want to they see him. His fame spreads rapidly. Whole cities come out to meet him. Uh, You read of men, women, and children running on ahead so they can get to the place that Jesus is going and be there waiting for him, whether it's in the synagogue or in someone's house or down on the beach somewhere. They're astonished at his teaching because he talks to them about God with with a kind of authority that they've never heard before. They want to hear him so much that forgetting to eat, they crowd for hours to listen to him. Sometimes, Mark notes, they do it with such enthusiasm that they almost threaten to crush Jesus in the rush. And Jesus has to hop onto a boat and go out from the shore and teach them from there. And uh, as you read, you can't help but ask yourself, I couldn't help but ask myself this week, am I, are we as eager to be with Jesus and hear him as they were? Uh, They also come great distances to be healed by him. They carry sick friends to him, as you'll probably know, even one time cutting through the roof of a house in order to lower a paralytic friend down to him. They see his power over demonic forces and they say to each other, what is this? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And they marvel at all he does, saying, we never saw anything like this before. So there's lots of excitement, there's lots of interest. But interestingly, throughout the first half of the book, only a few people realize who Jesus is. And it's not the people that we might expect. It's certainly not the religious (laughs) leaders, but it's also not the disciples yet either. So some are excited, but not many know him. A second common response is from those who increasingly oppose Jesus and his claims. So his family think he's mad, that he's gone out of his mind. The people of his hometown are unimpressed because they knew him when he was just a carpenter's son. The Gerasenes, after he delivers the man who's been um, possessed by a whole legion of demons, are so scared of Jesus that they beg him to go away from their town. The scribes, the teachers of the law, accuse him of blasphemy, of Sabbath-breaking, of being demon-possessed and a servant of Satan. And the Pharisees continually challenge him and begin plotting to destroy him. Jesus has this polarizing effect on people. And Mark wants us to see it. Some believe, some oppose. But the third and perhaps the most common response is actually that of confusion. And the disciples fit into this category perfectly. Mark, Mark tells us that they are, just look out for it as you read, they are continually amazed astonished and dumbstruck at what they're seeing and hearing you can almost picture them going around constantly with their mouths wide open and their eyes wide and they don't know what's going on they're surprised that jesus can calm the storm they don't understand how he can feed the five they they're afraid when they see him walking toward them on the water and the question that's on everyone's lips is who is this man who is jesus Now, I know some of us here like a good whodunit. The first half of Mark is kind of like a who is it. But unlike an Agatha Christie novel, uh, Mark doesn't hold on until the final chapter to gather everyone into the room and finally reveal Jesus' identity. He's not the butler. In chapter 8, Jesus himself blows the halftime whistle and brings things to a head. So please turn to chapter 8. Here's our kind of second place we're going to jump down chapter 8, verses 27 to 29, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. Uh, so there's our national survey again that we started with. But Jesus isn't interested in the survey. And verse 29, he asks them, but who do you say that I am? That's the question that really matters. Forget about what other people think. Who do you say that I am? And finally, Peter gets it. Finally, the penny drops. Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Now, that's not just a question for Peter and the disciples. It's a question posed to every reader of Mark. It's a question posed for all of us over these next few weeks. It's a chance to examine ourselves, for many of us to reaffirm our faith and our confidence in him, or perhaps to put our trust in him for the very first time. Wouldn't that be a life-changing thing to do this February? The big, the big question, who is Jesus? The other big question at this point is, why is this only the halfway point of the book? Why is there a second half to Mark's gospel at all? Well, it's because knowing Jesus is only half the story. Knowing who Jesus is is only half the story. If that's all you know, you don't yet know enough. It's vital that we also understand why he came, and that's the second half of Mark. So, whistleblows, kickoff, second half. Why did Jesus come? This is chapter 8 now, right through to chapter 16. Peter's confession that we just read in chapter 8, verse 29, is, is like the hinge of the book. It's like a doorway leading us through from one room into the next. He realizes who Jesus is, and immediately Jesus begins, verse 31, to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And um, rather embarrassingly for Peter, for whom we've probably all got such high hopes now, uh, he takes Jesus aside and begins to correct him. Can you just imagine it? Sorry, sorry, Jesus. Hang on a minute. Uh, You've got this a little bit wrong. There is no way that that is what the Messiah is meant to do. Because in Peter's mind, the Messiah is meant to be this great military leader who has come to liberate them from the Romans and reestablish their nation. The one thing the Messiah can't do is simply come and suffer and die. But Jesus, in turn, rebukes Peter strongly. He says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, what's gone wrong here? It's all going right, and then so quickly it's gone wrong. Well, quite simply, they don't understand why he's come. Their expectations for the kind of rescue that Jesus has come to provide are way, 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 way too small. They think they need rescuing from human oppression when really their far greater need is to be rescued from sin and death. In fact, the clues have been laid for that earlier on in the book, and look out for them as you read, particularly in chapter 2 and chapter 7, as to man's greatest need. Well, despite Peter's confession, he and the other disciples just aren't seeing it yet. They haven't picked up the clues. They're just like, in fact, the blind man that Jesus healed just a little earlier on in chapter 8. As you read chapter 8, the first time you see Jesus laying his hands on this blind man, his sight is restored but only partially. And that's a little bit puzzling. It's really unusual. Everything looks fuzzy. People, he says, look like trees walking around, which would be a strange experience. Then Jesus lays his hand on the blind man again, and at last his sight is fully restored. And that's a picture of the disciples right now. They can now see Jesus the Messiah standing before them, but their grasp of what that means is fuzzy. Fuzzy. They don't see fully yet, Uh, which also explains something that often puzzles uh, readers as we read through the first half of the book. There's all these occasions when uh, Jesus helps someone, heals them, uh, does something for them, and then tells them as they go away not to go and speak to anybody about what he's done for them. He tells them to be silent. Don't tell anybody about me. And it can be kind of bizarre. Why does he do that? Well, it's precisely because they don't understand yet what his mission is. And it's such a surprising and unexpected mission that they'll almost certainly misrepresent him if they now go around telling other people about this man Jesus that they've met. They need Jesus to teach them, and teaching them is now what he does. In chapters 8 to 10, Jesus teaches them why he came. And then in 11 to 15, still part of the second half, but but it's in 11 to 15 that he then sets out to fulfill the reason why he came. He turns his face to Jerusalem and sets off there to die. So we're just going to think about those two mini parts in turn. First of all, 8 to 10. Three times in chapters 8 to 10, Jesus tells his disciples that he must suffer, be killed, and after three days, rise again. Now, those predictions not only tell us that Jesus knew he was going to die, but they also tell us that he must die. That this is God's rescue plan. That this is the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. That's why Jesus came, to serve and suffer and die. And that's what his disciples and that's what all of us Need to understand. But there's also uh, a second prominent theme running through chapters 8 to 10 because Jesus weaves into his teaching about his death some of the clearest teaching the Bible gives us uh, on the nature of true discipleship, of what it means to be a disciple. Uh, And that's no coincidence. They're not really two different subjects at all. The, The one flows right out of the other. The person and work of the Messiah creates the model for Christian discipleship. Uh, And because, again, the disciples are just failing to understand Jesus' mission, that he needs to die, because they still don't really even grasp the character of God, they also fail to grasp the true nature of what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, They just think it's all about fame and status and wealth. Yet Jesus says actually following him involves taking up your cross and dying to yourself. Uh, now, suffice it to say, they continually put their foot in it. It's like watching an episode of You've Been Framed, starring this week the disciples. Uh, first of all, we see Peter wants to go camping with Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. Uh, when they think Jesus can't hear him, uh, hear them, the disciples all argue about who's going to get the disciple of the year award. They try to stop the children coming to see Jesus, the the very people that Jesus is most eager to see and bless. And finally, we see James and John petitioning Jesus to give them positions of power in his kingdom, completely missing the point that to be first in Jesus' kingdom, you must be a servant of all. And as Jesus says in Mark 10:45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, Fun times for the disciples. But before we judge them too harshly, we're meant to realize that looking at them is a lot like looking in a mirror. We need to be rescued from our selfishness and our sin just as much as they do. Finally then, we come to the climax of Mark's gospel. Chapters 11 to 15. You might have heard them called the passion narrative. That just means Jesus' suffering and death. What happens now is of overriding importance to Mark. Everything else has been building up to this point. Uh, If you like statistics, approximately 38% of the gospel of Mark is devoted to the week of the Passion. And 20% is devoted to the day of Jesus' death. It's like time slows down at this point. And especially in chapters 14 and 15, the camera zooms right in To show us every detail. Because here is the heart of the gospel. Leading us into Jerusalem where the opposition to Jesus is is exponentially increasing. Mark invites us into Jesus' last supper with his disciples. As he and his disciples sit down to share the Passover meal on the night before his death. And here at that meal Jesus demonstrates with Greater clarity than ever before, the reason that he must die. Breaking the bread, he gives it to them, saying, This is my body. And then sharing around the cup, he says, This is my blood. Jesus is the true Passover lamb, he's the lamb who will be slain as our substitute, a sacrifice for our sins. This was God's plan from the beginning. The whole of the Old Testament looks forward to what's now happening in these final chapters of Mark. Then we see Jesus praying in the garden, then his betrayal by Judas, all of his disciples abandoning him, and finally his trial, his crucifixion, and his death. And and here in these chapters, Mark doesn't waste a word. Every detail is dripping with significance And invites us, the readers, to reflect on what's happening. Uh, Let me just mention a handful of things to look out for when we get to this point in our reading. Notice first Jesus' heaviness of heart in Gethsemane as he anticipates the cup that he's soon to drink. Notice how, as he's led out of the garden by armed soldiers, how utterly alone Jesus now stands. It's like the whole world has either fled or turned against him. Notice his innocence and his silence before his accusers. Notice man's wickedness as they falsely accuse, ridicule, spit on and beat the one who has come to save us. Notice the irony woven throughout that, first of all, when Jesus tells them honestly and plainly who he is, they accuse him of blasphemy. The irony that Barabbas the murderer is treated as an innocent while the innocent one is sentenced to die. It's a picture of the gospel right there. The irony that when they finally dress Jesus as a king and bow down to him, it's all a cruel joke. It's a crown of thorns that's put on his head and a battalion of soldiers who take turns to strike him and spit on him. The irony of the charge inscribed, inscribed above him at the cross that simply reads, the King of the Jews. The irony of those who mock him saying, he saved others, he can't save himself, when it's precisely because he came to save others that he cannot save himself. And then as we read on, we should slow down even further. Notice the sky, black with judgment for three whole hours. A terrible sign of sin's black curse being laid upon Jesus as he hangs there to die. Then notice Jesus' cry of utter forsakenness, forsakenness. Even the Father has turned his face away from him. And then notice what happens when he breathes his final breath. Mark tells us immediately the curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. The barrier between God and man has been broken. The price is completely paid. And finally, when we get there, notice the surprising confession of a Roman centurion perhaps the first person in the whole of Mark's gospel to truly understand who Jesus is. You know, Peter only recognized Jesus when he was picturing him as a conquering king, but the centurion looks up and seeing the way Jesus suffers and dies, it dawns on him. (coughs) Truly, this man was the Son of God. Interestingly, Mark ends his gospel with the shortest account of the resurrection amongst all the four Gospels. Uh, We just read of three women visiting the tomb early the next day, expecting to find Jesus' body there, but the tomb is already open. And and let's just have a look at this. Mark chapter 16. We'll look at verses 5 to 8. We read, Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. for they were afraid. The end. Uh, just eight verses. The final 12 verses in Mark's gospel are certainly not, almost certainly not written by Mark. Just those eight verses and then this abrupt ending. Now, it's not that the resurrection is unimportant to Mark. Far from it. But it's as if with that abrupt ending, Mark is turning the spotlight on his readers and asking each of us the most important question of all. What will you do in the face of Jesus' death and resurrection? Will you run away too? Or are you willing to recognize the crucified, risen Jesus as your king? The best way to apply this morning's sermon message is to do just that. Bow the knee to Jesus. You could leave here this morning trusting and following the crucified, risen King if you're not doing so already. But the second way to apply this message is to join us in reading through Mark this month. Whether you're, uh, maybe you're reading it for the very first time. Maybe you're going to be reading it for the hundredth time. Let me just finish with a few final suggestions. Every time we read Mark, let's remember Mark's opening headline the good news of Jesus Christ. So wherever we read, whenever we read, let's ask God not only to show us this good news again, but also to help us grow in our love for it, in our gratitude for it, and our enjoyment of it. Let's keep on asking, what does this tell me about who Jesus is? How does this deepen my understanding of why he came What does it teach me about what it means to follow him? And most of all, here's a big encouragement, let's expect to meet the risen Jesus in the pages of Mark. The Christian life is is ultimately all about enjoying a living relationship with him, with the Father, through the Son. But if we're honest, that's not always our day-to-day experience. Jesus can sometimes feel like a distant figure that we we think about and we ponder from afar but who we don't always feel like we really know or walk with up close and personal but here in the bible jesus literally leaps off the pages to meet with us and in the gospels especially we encounter him with a directness and a vividness that perhaps is unmatched anywhere else in the bible so let's each of us remind ourselves every time we read this is jesus my king my Savior, the one who suffered and died for me, and he's here with me right now in his word and by his spirit to meet with me. Above all, let's remember, this is not homework. It's not a test or an assignment. It's an invitation to look back on a month of our lives together, together, to look back and say with joy, during that month, we really did grow to know our Savior better. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that in the pages of Mark, we can see him and know him as the Messiah, the Christ, who came to rescue us from our sins. Father, we pray that as we set out into this month to read Mark together, to to read in our own time and then come and share the ways that you have been speaking to us. Lord, we pray that you'd bless these times. Lord, would you make your word come alive to us and would you change us, transform us, help us to grow in the relationship that we have with you through your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.